Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Tuesday, January the 14th. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, on today's show, I will be talking temporary shelters here in Kamloops to help keep people warm during these frigid temperatures. I'll be speaking with the Executive Director of Ask Wellness in just a little bit. I will talk about a new Trades Assistant Program at Thompson Rivers University, and that's set to launch here next month. And Nature Conservancy Canada has acquired a 70-hectare parcel of land near Bella Coola at the Great Bear Range. So I'll be chatting more with them later in the show. But to begin today's program, I am joined now by SD73 Board Chair Kathleen Carpa. Kathleen, thanks so much for uh, coming back in. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so it's uh, 2020, a new year, and the board is, is back in action here. So, um, I mean, maybe just first and foremost, how does it feel to be back around the table as of last night? It's good to be back. It's a fresh start to New Year and a little chilly, but uh, things are going smoothly so far. That's good. Yeah, it's definitely very cold, but you're still able to get together. And, and not too many issues yesterday when it came to uh, closure, or there were no issues yesterday when it came to closure, so that was good. Um, actually, maybe before we even kind of get into what happened at the meeting, this might be a good opportunity to talk a little about how people can find that information if there were anything to go wrong, because I've been seeing uh, a lot of um, promotion here for the uh, SD73 app for people to go about getting on their phone. I got it mind it seems to be a really good tool and resource for people to get kind of that up-to-date information so is that sort of uh, where you would recommend i guess people gonna go for their information i mean they should tune into radio and l obviously first and foremost but uh, there are other ways to get information as well so uh, we do have our sd73 app which is uh, you can download to your mobile uh, you can sign in to whichever school that your child goes to or that you're interested in that will um, provide updates. So if we have a school closure because of a heavy snowfall or an emergency that's happening at the school, like a broken water main or something like that, we would be able to push that out on the app to parents and others who've signed up, and they would get that notification on the app that there was a school closure or hopefully any other um, incident that might be happening at the school, as well as whatever events are happening and... Uh, other interesting things that might be happening at the school. So right. It's not just for emergency situations, but it does provide just some, some news as well about what's happening at uh, whatever school you're interested in learning more about. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great resource. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's sort of get into to what happened here yesterday. You guys met for the first time this year last night. Uh, one of the things that was on the agenda was a Parkrest Elementary fire incident report. Um, that, that I haven't been able to see the whole report yet, but I know that will be on, online soon. So what can you tell me about this report at this stage of the game? Uh, what kind of new information were you provided with last night? So the report basically went over the uh, facts of what happened at Parkcrest, um, when the alarm went off, what happened after the fire alarm went off, um, the fact that uh, all of the staff were able to evacuate safely, uh, a timeline of when we knew that we had lost the school, um, who did the investigation on the fire, what was found. Uh, we weren't able, uh, KFR, Kamloops Fire Rescue, was not able to determine uh, what sparked the fire. There are some suspicions, but again, inconclusive. We don't know exactly what caused the fire. 
what came out of the report were six recommendations about uh, what we're going to do going forward. Uh, one of those is to review and demonstrate fire panels and alarms to our staff, make sure that everybody knows how to use them properly. We're going to be doing that on an annual basis. Review and strengthen some of our reporting processes. Um, we're going to continue to update schools with sprinkler systems. Uh, even though the report did say that with a sprinkler system, if it had been present, we still would have lost the school. But they are important that uh, we have those, and so we will be installing them in those buildings that don't have uh, sprinklers. Uh, we're going to be giving hard copies of site plans to Kamloops Fire Rescue so that they know where the gas shutoffs are and that type of thing. So that's just going to be able to speed up their response, uh, a lockbox installation so that they can get into schools faster, and uh, ongoing consultation with Kamloops Fire Rescue around processes and procedures and what we can do to make our schools safer. So a lot there kind of looking at, uh, you know, the, the fact that the fire happened and now what can be done to sort of prevent similar incidents in the future. So um, from, from what I'm hearing from that, obviously a, a real big shame that the school has been lost and uh, pretty terrible for the kids that go there and, and the community as a whole to lose that facility. But uh, you guys seem to be learning a lot from what took place and are able to uh, make some improvements here going forward. Our main concern always is with safety of students and staff. Uh, we know that the fire alarm functioned as it was supposed to. Everyone got out safely. Uh, Kamloops Fire and Rescue was able to respond in a timely manner. Unfortunately, we weren't able to save that building. It is built under a different building code from the 1960s. That does make it difficult to, uh, in, in some, it's got a lot of hidden spaces and empty spaces and that's where the fire origin was, which made it difficult to reach, difficult to, to put out. It had spread quite far before Kamloops Fire Rescue was able to get there. Yeah, um, you don't probably have this at all, but I'll, I'll just throw you on the spot. What is there any update on uh, a replacement at this point in time or just kind of still working with the ministry at, right at this stage of the game? We're still working with the ministry. We don't have any uh, firm answers yet as to, uh, when or if Parkcrest will be rebuilt. Okay. Well, we'll be keeping tabs on that. That story is, uh, you know, front and center for, for the next little while, I'm sure. Um, we'll, we'll move on to other things here. One of the things that you had mentioned to me before we jumped on air was the, the Foundry Center, and this is something you're very excited about, uh, a youth mental health center. Uh, what can you tell me right now about this? So Interior Community Services has applied for a Foundry Center for Kamloops. There are a number of communities that are competing to get one of these. There are six that are going to be launched in this next year. They are a, a, a youth mental health center that has centralized services. So if a youth and their family um, have a mental health concern or addictions, this is one place that they can go where they should be able to get all their services in one place rather than having to bounce around the community to access those services. Is it, uh, you know, really difficult or challenging, I guess, for, for at this stage of the game for people who are experiencing, um, you know, issues or have concerns about their own mental health? Um, I mean, is it difficult right now, I guess, to access specific services? Is it hard to find out what's available? Uh, I mean, how big of a difference can having things in one central location really be? This can be a huge game changer for people. Knowing that you can walk through the door and have all of the different agencies, all of the different professionals that you need um, to be able to assist you, 
is um, it's just incredible. Right now, it, there's waiting lists to get into um, some services. Uh, if you have challenges with transportation, having to go to multiple different sites to get access uh, is, is difficult. Um, there will be additional services offered at one of these sites. They are absolutely fantastic. They're a wonderful resource, and it is uh, desperately needed in our community. Yeah, uh, definitely something that I think is important to have everything kind of in that one spot so you're not you know, bouncing around from place to place. You just have one central location to go to get your needs met. Uh, I think that makes a big difference for people who are seeking help not to have to, you know, get the runaround and, and go from place to place. I think it makes it difficult for people to want to get help if it's difficult to access that help. Um, a couple other things here. I know that some of these are kind of, um, you know, approved from the previous um, agenda from, from the last one here of 2019. Uh, one of the things that I kind of caught my attention was the, uh, the menstrual product capital cost that uh, um, was brought forward here. Uh, you had received uh, $7,000, I believe it was, from the ministry to, uh, you know, provide these products to people, uh, to students in, in schools. And that obviously, or from what I'm reading from the report, was not near enough. What can you tell me about sort of what uh, the situation is as it stands now, where you weren't able to provide enough product, I assume, and now uh, going to the ministry to ask for some $80,000 more? Um, so we spent the $80,000 to install dispensers in every single washroom in all of our schools. And that means that um, students who need those products are going to be able to access them discreetly. They're not going to go and have to ask an adult for them. They're there. They can get them whenever they need them. That takes away a lot of stigma for um, students. So. It's a very, very worthwhile project to do, but it did cost us $80,000. Um, ongoing cost annually, we believe, is going to be around $10,000. We did receive a grant from the provincial government for $7,000, and it's very appreciated. The challenge is that uh, having to divert some of that money to putting in the dispensers means that other projects get delayed. Makes sense. Uh, I just think, yeah, it's something that's been talked about. It's something that should be provided, and I, I'm glad to see that it is, uh, you know, out there. Um, and, and now it's just a matter of figuring out how to go about paying for it, right? Always the toughest part. Um, last night was also a bit of a changing of the guard. Uh, you know, official retirement of Assistant Superintendent Rob Schoen was his last meeting, I believe, at the end of 2019. And Director Trish Smiley now takes on the position of Assistant Superintendent of Elementary Education uh, as of last night. Um, I guess just uh, one one question here just sort of get your thoughts on this change i mean uh, we've talked about it before when it was first announced but uh you know just excited to see someone new sort of come on board and, and take a more leadership role here we are very fortunate in that we have extremely talented staff members uh in our district we're very pleased that uh, we were able to have uh, Trish join our senior admin team from the director position. She brings a lot of experience to the district. Uh, her position is filled by another uh, one of our staff members. Uh, Vesi Mochikis will now be a director of instruction. Again, an incredibly talented person. Uh, we are very blessed in our district to have some absolutely amazing people to be able to step up and take on these roles. Awesome. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for uh, coming in. I guess, is there anything else you want to throw on the table while I have you in here? Uh, just again, that uh, the Foundry Center, if we could get one of those for Kamloops, it would be an absolutely amazing um, 
people should uh, take a look at the websites to see what they're about. And uh, if you're interested in writing letters, I know that Interior Community Service would uh, very much appreciate as many letters from the community as in support of this as possible. Perfect. Well, we'll do what we can here to, to help spread that message and get the word out. So thank you so much for doing this, Kathleen. Uh, 2020, new start to the year. Appreciate you coming in and, and continuing to do these post-board meeting chats with me. Uh, always enjoy them. So thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure uh, to be here. Awesome. That was uh, SD73 Board Chair Kathleen Carpuck. Coming up next, it is uh, cold outside, if you haven't noticed. How are the homeless handling this extreme cold? While well, Ask Wellness is helping with a couple of temporary warming centers, I'll be joined by their executive director to talk about those next. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Tuesday, January 14th. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me here today. The temperature outside right now in Kamloops is minus 21. That wind chill making it feel more like minus 31. Let's just call it stinking cold outside right now. Of course, when those big extreme temperatures happen, it does result in the need for those who are living on the streets to find somewhere to, of course, get out of those elements. Well, last week, city officials had told me that uh, a couple of shelters were full twice in December. Well, I'm sure that that number has been surpassed here in January already. Ask Wellness has uh, tried to help out by opening a couple of pop-up shelters, uh, one at Sparrow House and the other at Crossroads. And I'm joined now by Ask Wellness Executive Director, Bob Hughes. Bob, how you doing? morning, Jeff. So, uh, yeah, let's just talk a little bit about these pop-up shelters. I mean, you know, we've seen them open here over the weekend, and we've had some pretty extreme cold here uh, over the last, you know, three, four days or so. So, um, you know, how well utilized are these centers right now? What can you tell me about how often people are coming in to, to get out of these cold temperatures? Sure. I, I think I'd, uh, I just want to kind of preface as we, we, we have the conversation, Jeff, is to distinguish between what would be considered shelters where people mm-hmm. can come in and, and sleep and there's a bed, whether it's a mat or it's an actual uh, full-on bed. But what we're talking about here, what we did was was more warming right, stations. Right. So what, what happened for Sunday was as that cold front was coming in, we recognized that, uh, A, the mustard seed was going to be closed for both Sunday and Monday. The library was closed here in Kamloops. So we really had no place for people. There was no public place uh, for you know what turns out to be about 60-odd people to actually go and be inside in this weather. And, and so what we, um, with mustard seed and with CMHA, the three organizations, Organizations recognize that we need to provide a place 24 hours a day um, while this cold front is in in place for people to be able to actually be inside. Uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes outside with with uh, with no uh, no heat, and you can imagine the, the the you know we're talking life and death. So that's really where we um, focused our energy on was ensuring that there was places for people to go. And you know, as expected, I mean, it was immediate on Sunday, Jeff, where we um, ended up staging at the Vic Coffee Shop down on Victoria Street, and uh, before we knew it, we had 12 people within 20 minutes were got out that hey, they could come there and that we'd have staff there. We had our outreach teams with Ask out combing along the riverbanks and just really finding folks that were um, ill-equipped to deal with this, you know, some very young people, mm-hmm. some older, very, very sick folks, and so it really ended up being, you know, the, the three organizations mobilized to address this deficit. And it really speaks to, I mean, Frank it speaks to whose responsibility is it to look at warming centers in communities. We know municipalities um, uh, in the in the province, Vancouver, Burnaby, uh, Nanaimo, and uh, you know Victoria, for example, 
This city takes a lead role in this, and I think we've just identified a gap in our community that when we get this acute weather, who's quarterbacking a strategy to ensure that there are places, not only at night, but even during the days, for people to be able to uh, to get in from the cold? Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess I used the wrong t- wording when I said shelters when I meant to warm up centers, but uh, yeah, clearly, obviously, the, the you know, weather is, is making these well used, making people uh, you know really have to seek out somewhere to, to get inside and get out of the elements. Um, can you describe maybe what it would look like if someone were to walk into one of these warming centers, sort of what the scene looks like if, if someone were to, to take a peek inside there? Sure. I mean, it's it's very rudimentary. I mean, we've got uh, some community members that have come forward with, you know, gift cards to buy groceries. I just got off a call with the food bank saying, hey, can we bring you food down there? So we want to make sure that there's, you know, a bit of food, soup, um, and just simply it is, you know, the space we have. You don't need a lot when it's cold just to get inside. Um, so, you know, just couches, the television's on, and, uh, you know, there's a staff member there, and uh, we're hoping to get some volunteers from out of the cold. They've uh, expressed that they want to help out. Um, and so we're just going to run these um, these two stations at uh, Sparrow House and at, at uh, Crossroads, which already are you know at capacity with residential needs. So it's not a it's not the best plan. But again, um, you can never let uh, perfect get in the way of good. And that's uh, I think what uh, this is good enough for now. And, and hopefully we'll we'll um, in the you know in the coming days uh, you know bring together some of the stakeholders, including the city, to be able to identify how do we respond when we get an acute crisis like this. I mean, we have emergency preparedness for, you know, for floods, for, um, you know, for fires now. But, uh, you know, at this point, I don't think we have a, a plan for acute weather conditions like this that says, you know, where do people go and how do we respond? So, you know, sometimes uh, sometimes the gaps emerge when you, you think you got it all covered and something pops up that says you're just not ready. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's what we'll do with that. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves in terms of the demand, both, I think, for uh, a warming station in for shelter. Last night we had uh, 25 people at um, at Sparrow come in needing to get uh, in from the cold. Um, we had 10 at Crossroads, and then just talking with Mustard Seed, we had 38 people there. So I mean, the the the, the demand for shelter and for a warming station, you know, I think it speaks to uh, it speaks to the fact that we're just not quite ready for all of this. Um, and you know, I I kind of frame it, Jeff, like a, an emergency ward. You don't. You don't just have, you say, listen, we've had enough emergencies right now. We have no room for you. It just doesn't work that way. And when you have life and death uh, needs like this in terms of people being, you know, ensure that they have a place to go, you want to have some some room in there in the event of a catastrophic event like this. Um, We know that, you know, Sandman Centered opened up for the fires in 2017. Um, we've, uh, you know, we can see that when there's crisis that there's, you know, things that open up and we just need to be ready uh, for the next round that this happens that uh, in a way that we're, um, you know, we're not scrambling at the last minute to figure out what to do. Well, Bob, I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Unfortunately, we are out of time here, but I think that's uh, some great work that you guys are doing, you know, really helping to uh, keep people safe. And, and I'm sure you're saving some lives in the process here as well. So thanks so much for taking the time to fill us in on what's going on and, and uh, keep up all the great work. Okay, stay warm, Jeff. I'll do what I can. Thank you so much. That was uh, the executive director of Ask Wellness, uh, Bob Hughes. Uh, Stay tuned. More Jeff and Dre show will be coming up after the break, so stick around. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. 
Welcome back in here on Tuesday, January 14th. Hope you're all keeping warm out there with those uh, what, minus 32 degree wind chills right now. Uh, I got Kurt Appleby in here since I had a, a bit of a change in my programming, unfortunately. But uh, Kurt's filling in, so thanks so much for coming in, buddy. Yeah, your second best option here, buddy. Ah, you're number one, but, you know, I just can't bring you on all the time. <laughs> I need to bring you on more often. That's actually part of it. Um, man, how are you keeping warm right now? Are you keeping warm? Um, or no, just... I'm, no, I'm not keeping warm at all. I've got the double socks on. I've got the, double socks? the winter boots. Yeah, I've got uh, some mittens, um, a toque. Uh, yeah, I said the sweater, a jacket. I'm not wearing long underwear. I don't possess any of those. I'm thinking about <laughs> not it. Not yet, not yet. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Um, I mean, how, how is this for you? I mean, you're coming from the lower mainland, right? I mean, this is a, a little bit of a different world right now. I know they're seeing snow, but it's not like this. Yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a shell shock. And if I'm sure most people listening have been down to Vancouver, and, and what they don't understand is that minus 5, minus 6, minus 7, up to minus 10, that's still pretty damn cold in, in Vancouver right beside the water. And, and uh, you've got that bone-chilling cold. And, and I would take minus 20 up here over minus 10 down there any single day. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you when you come from places like, you know, like the interior here or, uh, you know, if you're living in Alberta or Saskatchewan, Manitoba, I mean, that, this kind of weather is normal. But when you're in Vancouver area, like I grew up in the Toronto area, and, and that minus five, six, that's cold, right? Like those yeah. are the cold temperatures. But now, um, you know, this is actually really more Canadian weather. So it's, uh, it's something different to get used to. Yeah, my first bout of Canadiana. If uh, if I can put it like that, uh, it's it's a shell shock. It's a bit of a culture shock too, if you can even say that. It's just I'm not used to this kind of cold weather and just grinding. My, I'm not used to sitting in my car seeing like steam. I felt like some sort of sorcerer wizard guy with the smoke coming out of my fingers yesterday. Yeah, and these uh, like idling rules. I don't know if there's a, a byline effect right now, but um, you definitely are warming up your car for a little longer than a couple of minutes at this point. It takes forever to actually get some heat in your vehicle. So hopefully everyone is staying warm out there. I just had Bob Hughes on from Ask Wellness here last uh, last segment talking about how well these pop-up centers are being used, these warming centers. Uh, no, no, no surprise that uh, they are being well utilized right now. You can't be spending any time outside at this stage of the game. It's just too cold. Yeah, no, no doubt. And uh, I don't have like a remote starter on my car, so you want it to warm up, but you also don't want to be sitting there for ten minutes while your car warms up. So, well, you know, we're we're going through some cold times, but uh, you know, things in Australia right now they're they're still on fire. Um, one of the things that is coming up because I know you're a big tennis guy, the the qualifications for the Aussie Open are uh, kind of underway, right? Yeah, already, um, st already started. Jeannie picked up her win last. Uh, last evening. Uh, not sure what the rest of the schedule is there, though. Well, here, I just wanted to play this. So um, there's a the little report that I got here. Tennis players qualifying for the Aussie Open are complaining about health impacts of playing in the smoky haze from these wildfires. Uh, qualifying for the first tennis major of the season got underway in Melbourne um, yesterday, I guess, really our time, uh, or today. Uh, Victoria State Chief uh, Health Officer Brett Sutton says the air quality there had reached hazardous levels. So here's uh, Brett Sutton right now. I think overnight for Melbourne, it, it did reach uh, the worst in the world. World. Uh, those conditions overnight are obviously when there are cooler temperatures uh, and the particulate matter can settle very low to the ground. Yeah, so air quality, you know, has improved from hazardous to now very poor. Climate experts warn that this could be the new normal now for Australia and are recommending playing the tournament indoors or delaying it. So, uh, Kurt, as a tennis guy, I mean, obviously, athletes, it's, it's going to be difficult to play in these kinds of hazy conditions. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of complaints. I remember with the Olympics in China about the air quality there. Um, this seems like it'll probably be almost worse than that for obviously different reasons, pollution versus 
forest fires are, are a bit different, but nonetheless, this would be something that would be difficult to be running around in and, and breathing in the smoky air. It, it really would be, and you know, when you watch tennis tournaments on TV, you see that um, you see the big stadium. Well, that's not how every that's not where everybody plays. There's lots of outer surrounding courts that maybe only see nobody. They they, they or they could see 500 people. Um, I, I don't. I've never heard this bandied about. I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head here. But maybe you have to, unfortunately, tell 100 people that they're not going to be able to play. Maybe you only play the the top seeded players in domes, and you have sort of a a, a constricted um, constricted field. I, I, I personally don't know, but there's if if you're playing in tennis, you're playing every day. In these two week tournaments, you're you're playing a lot of matches every day, and sometimes these matches can go upwards, especially in the five set major tournaments. They, they like can go three upwards hours, three four and hours, and half, four, yeah, four hours. So uh, if you're playing in those, if you're locked in a battle and um, in that heat, in that that smoke, I I can't see you wanting to play two days in a row in, in that sort of climate. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they uh, they go about uh, you know progressing with this tournament because I think they really have to take some of this stuff into account. I got uh, what, when does the tournament actually start? Do you know off the top of your head? Um, yeah, is it the 18th or the the 19th so, yeah, of it January? Gets, it's it's coming up quick, and um, you know it's going to be you know they got to make some decisions here uh, in the in the very near future on how this tournament is going to go ahead because they're not going to you know get rid of it off the calendar. It's it's a major, it's a very important event on the tennis calendar, and it's going to go forward. But I. I I wonder if it's going to get delayed at all, or, or uh, I don't know how you can go about moving it to indoors, like you had mentioned. I mean, you got how many people playing? Um, you know, you you got to get these other outer courts in use in order for this whole tournament to progress as it normally would. So, uh, or maybe they just lengthen it. Could that be possible? Just lengthen the length of the tournament and make it well, instead of two weeks. Or you're dealing with a whole bunch of logistics. You're dealing with hotels. You're dealing tickets uh, with yeah. tickets. You're dealing with rides, um, uh, transportation. Um, the venue itself, I don't know if it's pre-booked for, for anything else, any concerts coming up. Uh, I, like I said, you probably just have to restrict the amount of players that are playing and, and go with um, you know the, the upper echelon, and maybe it only lasts a week. Yeah, um, I mean, it wouldn't be the worst to just see those upper echelon. I mean, I, I'm not a huge tennis guy, but those are the matches I tune in for. So yeah. if they're still going to get the viewers if they do it that way, I think. Maybe even more because it would tighten up the tournament and make it a little bit quicker. And, and for the just average fan, uh, might make it even a, a little bit more interesting. Um, one thing, uh, you know, that's exciting for tonight, if you're a hockey fan, Sidney Crosby's coming back finally. He almost missed the last 30 games. Um, you know, are you, uh, I, I'm excited to watch his return because he always seems to score four or five points when he comes back from an injury. Yeah, but it's not like he's been gone the last year or something like that, right? It's been a couple, it's been a couple months here, which is still a long time to go without one of the best players in the games. And I believe the, the Pittsburgh Penguins have held themselves uh, pretty accountable throughout, uh, <laughs> throughout his absence. You take that sort of body out of any anywhere, any team, and, and you're in trouble, but not if you're the Pittsburgh Penguins who always find a way to get it down currently six points behind Washington with two games in hand, so they're they're sitting pretty here for a playoff spot. Oh yeah, uh, Malkin always steps up his game when Crosby's out too. Uh, one thing I found really interesting, I don't know why I found this interesting, I shouldn't even be surprised at all, but uh, was McDavid's, Connor McDavid's birthday here earlier this week, and uh, they were sort of doing the whole McDavid-Crosby comparison at their age 23 birthday, and uh, um, so 
right now, McDavid is behind four players um, for most points at your 23rd birthday. Those are Wayne Gretzky, of course, because he had like 900 points by 23. Um, <laughs> Dale Howardchuck, Mario Lemieux, and Sidney Crosby. So McDavid has 443 points at his 23rd birthday. And that's actually still um, 63 points. Yeah, 63 points back of... Uh, Sidney Crosby, and that that kind of surprised me because I figured McDavid, you know, I mean, yeah. he's put up at 100 point seasons every year, minus his rookie year when he got hurt and missed half the season. Um, but you, you can even look to how much the game has changed since Sidney Crosby was 23. What is he, 33? Right, he should be 32 right now. Yeah. So the game has changed, and I I wouldn't worry too much if you're a McDavid fan wanting to. Uh, to sort of surpass those numbers because Sydney missed a lot of time um, through cu- through concussions and, and back injuries and uh, and the likes of all of that and, and McDavid's been I know he missed a good chunk um, out of his second year but for the most part he's been pretty healthy. Yeah, uh, I I mean yeah, Mick, or sorry, uh, Crosby has been injured um, a lot more since since that one. I mean he had that one year with the concussion before he was 23 years old where he missed about 40 games and that's pretty much equivalent to what McDavid missed in. His his first year so uh, they're pretty similar in terms of games played by the age of 23 but still 60 points is quite a big uh, difference and I was just surprised given that scoring is up so much but I guess scoring was up quite a bit when Crosby and Ovechkin first entered the league so um, it, I guess it kind of makes sense and you should pass them you would think I mean Crosby's <laughs> one of the best all-time in points per game um, but he misses a lot of times. So, a lot of games. So it's difficult to say, but uh, I'm excited to see him back in the lineup tonight. Pittsburgh is always a fun team to watch, and they're more fun uh, when one of the best players in the game is, is uh, on the ice. Thanks so much, Kurt. Appreciate yeah. you coming in and yeah. taking the time. No problem, buddy. All right, that was uh, Kurt Appleby. Uh, of course, you can listen to him all the time on the NL Morning News with Howie Reimer. So uh, tune in, 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, to hear more of my good friend, uh, Kurt Appleby. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking with Nature Conservancy Canada about some work going on in Bella Coola. So uh, stick around. we got more Jeff Andrea Show coming up after this. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back in here on Tuesday the 14th. Thank you so much for joining me here. Uh, a new conservation project by Nature Conservancy Canada is aiming to protect, protect Salmon Sanctuary in the Great Bear Rainforest. It has acquired a 70-hectare pro- piece of property on the Bella Coola Estuary. Here now to talk about this move and to purchase this land up in northwestern B.C. is the B.C. Regional Vice President of the Nature Conservancy, uh, Conservancy of Canada, Nancy Newhouse. Nancy, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join me here today. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jeff. So th- this land, it's up in the, the Great Bear Rainforest, uh, you know, near the community of Bella Coola. Um, that's about six hours west of Williams Wake Lake, just to uh, put that out there in people's minds. Why was this so important? What was it about this piece of land that, uh, was draw- uh, that Nature Conservancy Canada was drawn to and, and wanted to, uh, you know, help protect here moving forward? Well, Nature Conservancy of Canada's vision is a world in which Canadians conserve nature in all its forms and, and safeguard lands and waters that sustain life. And this project is a great example of uh, making that vision come true. Estuaries are incredibly productive lands. It's the place where freshwater and saltwater come together, and that's where you get a tremendous abundance of life. This parcel was <clears throat> one of the last uh, large pieces of private land 
that was uh, connected to other protected areas. And so it was a really key piece for uh, salmon, for grizzly bears, and for the New Hulk Nation that have uh, used the lands uh, in traditionally for a very long time. Was this a difficult move for, for Nature, Nature Conservancy Canada to, to go about acquiring this? I mean, you had a, quite a bit of help, it looks like, for some, from some uh, government agencies as well as a number of donors who helped uh, contribute towards this project. Um, just Can you talk a little bit about the process of being able to actually go about acquiring this land, and, and was that a difficult process? Sure. Well, we've, we've had a long-term relationship with the landowner and conversations have been going on for, for quite some time. Um, it's tremendous to get the support of the Government of Canada through the Natural Heritage Conservation Program um, and also various corporations and individual donors. And this is the same process that we undertake um, across the country in identifying you know, the most important places for Canadians for, for conservation. Uh, so this one, uh, we really appreciated all the, the energy, the support, the, the financial um, contributions that were made uh, by, by the donors to make it a reality. And, you know, it, our, our work doesn't stop once we, we buy a piece of property. We, we actually set aside funds to steward the land uh, in perpetuity. Our, our commitment is, is for the long term. Yeah, and that kind of goes into my next question is sort of what happens now that this land is, uh, you know, in, in your hands at, at uh, the NCC? I mean, um, you know, I assume that, to, you know, the whole goal here is to, uh, you know, protect the land and protect those uh, endangered species and, and protects the, the, uh, the, the salmon sanctuary as well. Um, so with that in mind, I guess, how, did, how do you go about doing that moving forward? Is this about, uh, you know, keeping people off the land and, and reducing as much human activity in the area as possible or sort of what's next now? for this this parcel of land that you have acquired sure that's a great question so our process uh, once we acquire a piece of land we we do a baseline inventory so we go up and actually do a bit more detailed look at what um, what values there are there what plants what animals um, and then we move into doing a property management plan and understand what the existing uses are, what the community uses are, what the indigenous uses are, and start to figure out what's, what's the best plan for the land. Um, in general, we do provide public access onto all of our lands unless there's some particularly high sensitive area um, that we need to restrict access, but we do want people to be able to understand and enjoy nature and so we try to provide those opportunities where it makes sense was there any big concern about what could happen had you guys not been able to acquire it had ncc not gotten this land um you know do you have any idea what could have potentially happened was there potential for development in the area or uh, you know like why was it so important to make sure that uh, you know you guys were able to acquire this land and, and maybe keep it out of someone else's hands well, I think there's always risks to other uses when you have private land. It can change ownership, and you can have people with a very different vision than conservation. So there could have been anything from recreational developments to um, perhaps some more timber harvesting. Um, and sometimes it's it's hard to know what the future brings, but private land is always at risk. And so by us being able to step in, we've got that certainty that now this, this land is conserved in perpetuity. 
Right on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful piece. I was looking at some of the, the pictures of the area that were sent mm -hmm. to me uh, in connection, and uh, yeah, it's it's some, some breathtaking scenery for sure, um, and, and yeah, you, the fact that uh, this is going to hopefully help, um, you know, a number of confirmed species at risk, uh, lists the, the, the grizzly bear is somewhat a special concern. Um, not sure what some of these other things are, the uh, marbled merlet and the dolly varden that were mentioned as some special concerned or threatened animals in the area as well, but um, I guess very important that, you know, when we're looking at any kind of species at risk, that uh, their habitat is protected in, in, as much as possible because if they're at risk now and we don't protect it, then, uh, you know, that's just a matter of time before they're endangered. So uh, I think it's important to uh, make sure we are protecting our nature. It's something that, uh, you know, maybe we humans haven't been the best at doing over the last uh, century or so, but uh, we seem to be taking a lot more care of it moving forward. And, and I guess that's really the whole intent here is to protect nature and, and uh, you know, make sure it's in as, it's as much a natural state, I guess, as possible absolutely that's that's the name of the game is is to uh think about how we keep these values um for canadians forever well nancy thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak to me today anything else that you want people to know about this purchase and uh, about this land here before i let you go uh no i think that covers it but just yeah thanks so much to all of the our our steady donors including the government of canada that uh that has helped make this project and many others a reality. Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak to me today, Nancy. Really appreciate it. I think uh, it's an exciting project for you as well and, and uh, probably some, some cool work that will be coming up here uh, in the future on that parcel of land. So thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care. You as well. That was Nancy Newhouse, BC Regional Vice President of the Nature Conservancy of Canada. They are talking about, like I said, that 70-hectare piece of property at the Bella Coola Estuary. So uh, a neat little thing that's going on there. If um, I was talking about this uh, this interview here earlier today, and I, I was unaware of this. I, I should have been, but um, there was one reference of uh, Bella Coola when it comes to pop culture. In 2008, The Incredible Hulk, the main character, who was Edward Norton, or Bruce Banner, uh, concludes the plot by escaping to Bella Coola, where he attempts to control his transformation. So there you go. Um, if you're going up to Bella Coola to check out this new purchase, well, maybe, just maybe, you'll run into the Incredible Hulk while you're up there. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. Um, make sure you uh, stay safe and stay warm out there. Uh, make sure, uh, you know, if you are out on the streets that you're taking advantage of these warming centers or if you're, um, you know, you need to go out for a walk or whatever the case may be, make sure you bundle up because uh, right now, like I had mentioned in the weather here earlier in the program, the temperature outside, minus 21, wind chill making it feel more like minus 32. Um, that, that sounds like a risk of frostbite to me. So make sure you stay safe, make sure you bundle up, and uh, try to keep warm if indeed you can. Well, like I said, I thank all my guests for listening, and a big thank you to all of you for joining me as well. And just remember, if you join me for a short while or a long while, just know that I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.